Hello, everyone. Good evening and welcome to Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, your host, and doing our audio engineering is Sarit Lashinsky. On Teen Scientist, I aim to bring you all stories of groundbreaking innovation in the STEM disciplines entirely from a youth perspective. To do so, we feature young researchers and respected experts in their fields at the local, national, and international levels. Tonight's guest is Pavi Dimon, a young teen innovator and researcher interested in developing health technology for aging populations in under-resourced countries. Welcome, Pavi. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Well, that's great to hear, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. Now, before we get started, can you briefly tell our listeners about yourself and your background? For sure. So, hey, everyone. My name is Pavi. I'm currently 16 years old. And I'm a senior in high school based in Toronto, Canada. And I've worked on quite a few projects relating to healthcare for almost two years now, ranging from technologies like nanotechnology to AI to really just make healthcare more accessible with technology for people around the world. Amazing. I'm excited for us to get to know more about you in today's segment. So can you share how your interest in science and research initially sparked as a kid? Was there a particular moment or experience that you vividly remember that kind of ignited that curiosity for you? Yeah, to be honest, ever since I was younger, I always loved math specifically. I love solving problems. And I would remember that anytime my teacher brought up a word problem, I would be the first to like jump up and go to the board to solve it. Um, But eventually, when I got into grade nine, I think one of my favorite things about science, tech, and just solving problems is I love this concept of taking fundamentals that you learn in class, like math or like science, and apply them to real-world situations. So this is where I kind of took my love for math and for solving problems into science because I saw that real-world connection. So eventually, it leads to getting really interested in nanotechnology, which is kind of the combination of everything you can think of in science. It's all about chemistry, physics, quantum mechanics, biology, and math. And so I started building projects in nanotech uh, when I was about 14 years old. And ever since then, I got really into healthcare, and that's where everything took off. And can you now walk us through that journey into the fields of healthcare accessibility and what motivated you to focus on certain issues in that field? Yeah, so ever since I was younger, I always got sick. So, you know, I live in Canada, and we get all four seasons pretty harshly. And so anytime the season would change from like summer to winter or winter to fall or anything like that, um, I would always get the flu. And the problem was, is that this flu would last for like 10 to 15 days at a time. And so it happened about four times in a year. So I would always be sick for almost like two months in a year, which is crazy to actually think about. But eventually, you know, one of the things I noticed was whenever I got sick, I always had really great facilities. So, you know, in Canada, we have universal health care. So I had free health care. I could go to my doctor and just get anything and everything that I needed. I always got the right medication at the right time with, you know, the right doctor and in my really nice right home with my nice right bed. But eventually when I was 10 years old, my family and I took a trip to India because a lot of our family lives there. And surprise, I got sick again. But this time I got sick, it was very different. I remember that we we went to this doctor's office or this clinic actually on a motorcycle, which was like the first weird thing because I'd never been on a motorcycle. But we go to this clinic And the second that I walk inside, I see these children that are probably my age or even younger, like throwing up right outside of the hospital or begging for me. And this is the first time I'd ever seen anything like this. And I was just shocked as a 10 year old. I was like, what is going on? Eventually, I went inside and there's this doctor right in front of this table with like a nurse right behind him. And there's just like tons of seats, almost like a lecture hall in the university. And you had to go up, wait for your turn and to get diagnosed, go behind this curtain. And so that's when I realized that these 
this healthcare system in India, which is a developing country, is so much more different than what it is in Canada, where we have universal healthcare. And eventually, that's when I decided, oh, I want to be a doctor. Um, but I realized that these problems are so prevalent. That by the time I become a doctor, which is when I'm going to be about 28 years old, it's going to be a very long time and a lot of things would have changed. So I decided at that point, you know, after a few years, I decided, you know what, instead of trying to be a doctor, I'm going to try to innovate within the field of healthcare. And that's why I got super interested and decided I wanted to use technology for that because I got to bring in this love for science and tech that I have, but also tackle a problem that I'm really passionate about and have a really direct correlation to. And ever since then, I went into, you know, nanotech and then ended up moving into AI and remote monitoring and telemedicine and all that fun stuff. Wow. I love that story. I appreciate you kind of sharing that anecdote with us. Now, I want to transition a little bit. You've kind of given us the background on how you got into science and how you got into healthcare accessibility. Can you now talk us through your interest in using AI for non-invasive diagnosing through voice-based system? Um, How did you come up with this whole idea and what impact do you see it having on healthcare accessibility in the future? Yeah, for sure. So just a quick breakdown on what voice-based biomarker systems look like. Essentially, there's a ton of diseases out there, and every disease normally has some type of biomarker. Some have things like blood biomarkers, others have things like facial biomarkers, some have things like voice biomarkers. Essentially, it's these indications in your voice and in your vocal cords that tell the doctor, or in this case, an algorithm, that you might have a certain disease or you might be sick. So I remember the first time I heard about this, I think it was like 15 And so I read this paper about MIT doing this research study when COVID-19 was happening, where patients would be able to cough like into their phone speaker and the MIT um, researchers and the algorithms that they built could detect if the patient had COVID-19 or not. And my mind was blown because I didn't even know that was a possible way to detect COVID. And so I ended up realizing that this was a really interesting new method of non-invasive diagnosis. And so I ended up looking at other diseases that this could be used for, which ended up being things that were more neurological. So an example was Parkinson's disease. And I noticed that it had the same impact, but with diseases that impact people for years on end, not just about like two weeks of COVID. And personally, I think that this is actually like the next generation of non-invasive diagnosing. Because in things like healthcare, you have a lot of things like endoscopies that are very invasive. And it's crazy how healthcare has evolved over time, yet we still have so much of this diagnosing and so much of this technology that is so invasive for the patient. And so I started thinking, how can we use technology like AI and something you carry around all the time, like your smartphone, and do a really quick non-invasive test through your voice? Like you can speak into your phone and detect if you have a disease through data that you get over time with being on your smartphone. And so I ended up kind of making all these connections um, and making this like huge mind map. And I thought that non-invasive diagnosing specifically through voice biomarkers was the way to go. Wow. You know, super interesting and pretty complicated. But I do want to touch on one thing. So everything that you described sounded pretty kind of like utopian, you know what I mean? Like futuristic mm-hmm. and, and we, we aren't really used to kind of seeing that technology in day-to-day life. So what's what's your opinion? And it's kind of a layered question, but where do you see the challenges and drawbacks in this kind of technology? And, and how do you think that we should deal with, you know, privacy concerns and AI safety and access to data um, when this technology becomes more prevalent? Mm, yeah, definitely a good question. I would say, so, so the first thing is that the way that these work, because I know it does sound very utopian and like, oh, you can diagnose a disease with the sound of your voice. That's just crazy to think. But really, it's all about AI and machine learning. So we've seen a lot with AI, things like, you know, ChatGPT with 
with LLMs and with NLP. But the thing with machine learning is that it essentially takes a ton of data and trains on that data. So it learns different patterns in this data and what you want the output to be. So with voice systems, the way that it works is it's all about science and waves. So if you, ever, you know anything about physics, it's all about waves and frequency. So if you speak into your phone, what this algorithm is going to do is take your data and essentially turn it into this like wave pattern and this signal. And then it's going to compare different patterns using math and like sine and cos waves, for example. So again, using the fundamentals of math to figure out what's so different about your wave versus someone else that has no disease and their wave. So it's kind of the comparison that you make. But I think the hardest thing about you know voice biomarker and, and, and non-invasive tech in general First thing is the access to data. So one of the problems that I faced when I was trying to build out this system, which is why I actually ended up pivoting away from it, was that it's so hard to get data on this. So like you mentioned, it's very new technology. And so you don't have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of data sets of Parkinson's patients, for example, speaking into their phone to detect if we have, if, if they have a certain disease, right? You just don't have that because this is such a new concept. The first problem is that there's a very limited data set out there, which means that the models you create and the technology you create isn't very accurate. And therefore, we aren't at the point where we can be, where this can be used commercially because there's just not enough data out there. So the solution to that is to go out and get more data, which is done through clinical trials, which are going to take years on end to actually do. But that's the first thing. The second thing is privacy concerns, which I think is actually a really interesting topic to hit with healthcare because something that I've realized through talking with patients, through talking with other experts in the field, is that a lot of people are actually becoming less concerned with their healthcare data, which is kind of surprising. I think of something like the 23andMe genetic test, where people can literally give their health data, essentially, and the company can figure out their exact genetic makeup and you know their cultural background. This is really interesting, but it's human nature that we just want to know more things about ourselves. We want to know more things about the world. And healthcare data is the key to actually knowing a lot more about yourself. So I realized it's the privacy concerns with healthcare is actually a lot less. But if you explain to people what you're going to do exactly with that data, they will be really open to you using it, especially when they're in desperate situations where they need diagnosing. Because, you know, just a quick fact, with Parkinson's disease, it takes almost a year to two years to diagnose. So these people are living years on end without knowing what is going on in their bodies. But if they can give a little bit of their data, they'll be able to figure out and get a solution. So I think that the privacy concern is, it's definitely there. But it's not as big and it isn't as big as a concern compared to something like access to data. Absolutely. And I think you did very well for answering such a heavy question. I now <laughs> want to ask, where do you even start when you're building tools and devices like this? I personally am totally on the other side of things. I do wet lab work. And so I don't really get behind a computer mm-hmm. and, and build devices like this. So, you know, starting from the beginning, where do you even go about this? I think the first thing is really the problem. And I remember I've worked on a lot of different projects um, over the past few years, things like healthcare to climate tech to insurance. And the thing that always stays the same is you have to have a really good understanding of your problem because if you don't, you won't know what solution you want to build. And so the problem that I see a lot of innovations and a lot of people get into is that they try to build these things without actually knowing what the user wants. So the first thing that I always do is, is get on my laptop and just start reading about certain problems. So typically I have like a passion or some incentive towards working on something. So in this case, like I'm just really into healthcare and trying to make healthcare more accessible, which is why I started looking into voice biomarkers. So I start reading a ton of articles about the problem, first of all. So in this case, the problem that I was working on was Parkinson's disease. 
And so I read articles about this like really old method of diagnosing Parkinson's and how it stayed the same for decades. And that made me really mad. It's another part of that I think is so important to work on any project. Um, a lot of people say you have to fall in love with the problem, but I think you have to hate the problem. So if you have to hate a problem so much that it brings up some emotion within you, like anger or like sadness, or even maybe, you know, anything like any negative emotion probably that incentivizes you to work on this problem because when stuff gets hard, when you're building a tech, that emotion is the thing that's going to drive you. So for me, it was this anger towards like tons of people around the world don't have access to healthcare, but we have things like smartphones. Why can't we use our phones to do something for our health? So anyways, I would say, you know, research first a lot, figure out what you hate about this problem so much, and then try to make it really specific. So this means spending like two to three weeks on a problem, which I don't think a lot of people do. But when you spend weeks on end on a problem, you do things like root cause analysis. You ask the five why analysis, which is essentially making a problem statement and then just keep asking why, 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 why is this happening? And then you get to this core problem you can actually tackle. Because, for example, if you take an example like climate change, you can say like, oh, greenhouse gas emissions has increased by X percent over the past 10 years. A lot of people, it's like a very overwhelming problem to tackle. But if you then split it up like, oh, agriculture accounts for 60% of greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, why does it do that? Because, I don't know, the, the methods to building these crops are not sufficient. Okay, why does that happen? Essentially, you keep going down this rabbit hole where you end up with a really succinct problem that you can work on and then build an interesting solution to. And then I'd say the next thing is speaking to experts and speaking to people that actually experience the problem. So for me, what this looked like was I was speaking to a few Parkinson's patients or even the spouses of Parkinson's patients that were telling me about the problems they were facing. And then I ended up switching part of the problem I was working on because I realized the user doesn't want me to work on diagnosing. They want me to work on monitoring the progression of, of their um, loved ones. So then when you speak to the patients and then you speak to experts saying, okay, I have this problem, I have this potential solution. Now, what should I do to do this? And they've been working on it for years. So they give you great advice. Uh, and eventually, you know, you keep iterating and I think you end up with a pretty solid solution. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for giving our listeners some more insight into your experiences and backgrounds. Now, before we continue, we do need to pause for a quick break. But when we return, Pavi will continue discussing her project and share her advice for other aspiring scientists. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Teen Scientist. You've already discovered that this NPR station is an excellent source of news and entertainment. But did you know that this station is a nonprofit? Public radio is for the public, available to all free of charge. That is possible thanks to people just like you who give what they can to support open access to information. So thank you for listening and for making all of this possible. Call 610-758-8810 or give online at WDIY.org. Welcome back to Teen Scientist on WDIY. Tonight's guest is Pavi Demon, joining us all the way from Canada. We just finished discussing her background and early experiences with science, and now we're going to continue discussing her research as well as delve into her goals for the future and advice for you all. So jumping right back into it, Pavi, I want to ask about your kind of philosophy about simplicity. After going through your work, I've noticed you kind of emphasize the importance of simplicity. So can you provide some examples of how simplifying a concept or idea can lead to better outcomes? A hundred percent. Simplicity is my favorite thing. So I've worked on a lot of projects to date. And one of the things that I've realized, even just by looking at successful projects in the world, is they're always very simple. They're always nailed down to what the user actually needs, not just a ton of extra fluff. 
So, you know, I think one of the best examples that I have is when I did a project in insurance. So I remember this was last year. I think it was like back in April, I want to say April of 2023. My friends and I decided we wanted to work on a problem of insurance. So insurance is a thing that a lot of North America have access to, and it saves us quite a bit. But in developing regions, one of the ones that we tackled was India. There's not a lot of insurance out there, but there's a lot of problems when it comes to securing your assets. So for example, they have tons of natural disasters like monsoon season, which end up just destroying their homes entirely. But India has less than a 1% penetration rate, which is just crazy to think about. And so my friends and I were trying to dive deep into this problem. There were so many parts of it. It was insane. The problems were people didn't even know what insurance was. So you hit this lack of awareness. The other problem is people don't have access to it at all because the current insurance solutions out there are really expensive. And then other parts of it were just, they thought this that, that insurance was like a fake thing or it was a facade and it wasn't real and it wasn't going to help them at all. And they didn't even know how to access it and it took too long. So you have all these components of this problem that are just so complicated. And my friends and I were thinking, how do we make a really simple solution to tackle all of these problems, but in one solution? So we ended up, you know, trying to think of ways to collaborate with companies, making this really complicated business model. And then we brought it to one of our coaches and he said, okay, this is just terrible because you're not going to solve any of the problems because trying to do too much. So what we ended up doing was realize that the intense penetration rate in India is less than 1%, but the iPhone and smartphone penetration rate was like over, I think, 60, 70%. So we thought, okay, a lot of these people that need insurance actually do have phones, they do have television, they do have assets that they need to secure. So let's try to build them an app. So we ended up building this app and this chatbot, it's like 24 7 chatbot, where they can ask this chatbot any questions that they have, basically this like insurance agent, any questions they have, you get to tackle the lack of awareness. Then we have a microfinancing type of uh, method that tackles the lack of, or like the, the options of really expensive insurance options out there. So we tackle this like cost barrier to them. And we also connect them to people like real life insurance agents with other companies. And that tackles the problem of they don't know what's going on and they need help to navigate things. And then in terms of marketing, we just use things that currently go on in India, like events to market it. So what ended up happening was we took this really complicated problem, broke it down, we tried to make it as simple as possible, and then tried to make a simple solution like an app that can incorporate concepts and incorporate solutions to all of these problems, but do one space. So this user enough to go and go to like 50 different places to try to solve their insurance problem. And hopefully that'll help the insurance problem in India. And what do you think has been the biggest hindrance in having that kind of education and awareness about these healthcare issues and insurance problems? Like, what do you think is the root cause and why has it been such a struggle to overcome those problems? I think, honestly, part of the reason is lack of resources, but a huge part of the reason is actually the culture. So I'm just going to keep bringing up India because I have a lot of examples to do with India. The problem with India is that or not so the problem, but just the culture and the way that people are is, you know, they don't always think they need healthcare, and they don't think they need to secure their assets because they'll always be fine. Or they don't think that they need to secure against other things because their families will always be okay. And so in India, for example, there's this culture of we're going to be fine. It's not a problem. And we won't experience these things. Versus in Canada, you have this or, or in North America, generally, you have this emphasis on securing yourself, you know, making sure you have health insurance, making sure you have home insurance, making sure you have healthcare in general. And so I think the main thing is culture. 
But the other thing that I want to talk about is actually with lack of access to healthcare, it's a very difficult problem to solve. So an example would be there's this really smart person. He's an investor. His name is Vinod Kulsa. He runs Kulsa Ventures. And he's worked a lot within the healthcare space. And one of the things that he talks about is if we wanted to solve healthcare accessibility around the world, something that we could do is we could say, okay, the, the best solution would be let's take a ton of doctors that are in North America and just bring them to these developing nations so they can, one, teach all of the doctors that are there or, or you know, doctors soon to be doctors. And they can also just provide better care to patients that are in India or in the continent of Asia or Africa, right? But the problem there is that all these doctors are not going to go to these developing regions because they want to stay in places like North America because that's where their life is. So the next concept of that comes, how can we use technology to solve this barrier, which is what I really wanted to work on, which is essentially this new concept that I'm trying to think about, about AI doctors. So essentially, I read a book called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is a great book. And it talks about how we need to work on not replacing doctors, but bringing technology to actually help assist doctors, which I can talk a little bit more about. Um, but I do think that generally the, the lack of education, lack of insurance, and lack of healthcare does have to go back to cultural reason, which is why when you're building solutions for these areas, you have to make sure you're hitting what they want in terms of their culture. Absolutely. Um, now, I want to kind of transition a little bit and talk about some of your findings. Can you explain if there have ever been any surprising or unexpected results um, that you've encountered during your research journey, particularly when delving into the correlation between vocal cords and diseases? And how did you discover them? And why do you think those ended up happening? So I think the main one with vocal cords and diseases is what I really liked is just, again, how these fundamental concepts all come and play together. So, you know, I didn't think that your, your vocal cords would actually be that much of a biomarker. So this is like back to the very beginning of when I first decided I want to work on this project. I was so confused. And everyone I talked to is always so confused about how your vocal cords can tell you if you have a disease or not. And I think one of the most interesting things is how biology works and how complicated the human body is, but how much it just makes sense when you understand it. So. I'll explain a little bit about biology here, but with, I'm going to go with Parkinson's disease because that's what I worked on. Um, essentially, the project was you speak into your phone and within 10 seconds, you can determine if somebody has Parkinson's or not. It's simply if they say this word like for 10 seconds or longer. So the most interesting thing to me was the way that Parkinson's actually shows itself in the vocal cords. So for those of you who don't know, Parkinson's is a, it's a muscular disorder and essentially, the dopamine in your brain decreases drastically. And when this decreases, you actually lose muscle function. And when you lose muscle function, you actually, that happens in your face first. And it also happens in your hands. So you get things like tremors, but it always happens in your face first. So the first thing that happens after, you know, your dopamine decreases, you lose muscle function, you lose in your mouth, right? So we're all, Raina and I are both talking right now. Our mouths are moving, right? This is all muscle function. It's, it's your brain connecting directly to the muscles in your, uh, in your jaw and in your vocal cords. But the problem that happens is when you lose muscle function, one, your muscles aren't moving in your mouth like they should be. So either you lose a control or you can't, you just generally can't talk as well as you could have before. But the second thing is your vocal cords actually end up aching a lot. So when I was analyzing the, the vocal cord data, what I realized was people with Parkinson's have a lot more of a shakier voice, um, meaning that their wave signs and their frequency are just not very consistent. So they're like, up and down and, and in random directions. And that's directly related to the loss of muscle function. So that's exactly how you can tell that somebody has Parkinson's through their voice because they're losing muscle function and they can't 
move their vocal cords as much as they could. So that was probably the most interesting thing. It is a very basic concept in the technology overall, but it just explains the whole reason why this technology is possible. And how is your algorithm able to distinguish between Parkinson's and other conditions? Maybe like even older populations might have, you know, shakier voices or if you have I don't muscular dystrophy, for example, other conditions that can mm-hmm. impact your your facial muscles. How are you able to distinguish between those kinds of changes in your your vocal cords? So the main thing here, which is why the project ended up taking a pivot, but the main thing is that a lot of neurodegenerative diseases have this exact correlation. So all reason dementia is probably a little bit of a different bucket because that's more related to like people forgetting things. But when you're thinking about but yeah, muscular dystrophy or Parkinson's, they have the same concept of your muscles. But the problem is you then end up looking at other biomarkers that are present in Parkinson's. So if you have things like hand tremors or they can't walk properly, or you can also see it just like, yeah, mainly in hand tremors, I think is the main one. Then you keep relating it to Parkinson's. So I'll give a little bit of backstory. The way that Parkinson's is diagnosed is these doctors do a ton of tests and they basically cross out every other potential neurological disease that somebody could have. And then they diagnose that someone has Parkinson's, which is why it takes like one to two years to actually diagnose. So the main thing here is that let's say that someone is on route to being diagnosed to Parkinson's. So maybe they have one to three biomarkers, like other biomarkers and other indications that they might have Parkinson's. This voice test is basically that like checkoff point that, oh yeah, they definitely have Parkinson's if vocal cords are disrupted because this is one of the earliest biomarkers that occur. So it's hard to compare it to something like muscular dystrophy because typically they will indicate it the same way, but that's the that's when you start looking at other biomarkers present in those separate diseases and you do tests and MRIs and CTs and then you figure it out like that. Definitely. Now, what are your goals um, for the future, either specific to this project or more in general in the long term for your mission to increase healthcare accessibility? And as a researcher, what are your plans for the future? So I think one of my main plans are definitely to keep going into AI and and going into healthcare. Uh, The other thing is I am a senior in high school, so I'm applying to tons of universities very soon. And so I'll hopefully be studying some type of engineering and computer science related to um, healthcare. But I think my main concept that I want to work on building out over the next few years, probably is going to take longer than that, is these, this concept of AI doctors. So like I mentioned, I read the book 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and that was probably the best way that this was outlined, which is a lot of people are trying to integrate AI to healthcare, but the whole point is not to replace current doctors, but it's to support them. And I think one of the most interesting ways to explain this is what AI and algorithms bring that humans don't is connectivity and updatability. So, for example, I want to build this type of algorithm where you can connect the virtual doctors across the entire globe. For example, let's say that there's this case, inflammatory bowel disease, which is like a very common disease with the general surgery gist of things. So say that you have somebody with inflammatory bowel disease in Canada and you have somebody with, it's called IBD, so someone with IBD in Egypt. Let's say that there's a really special case with this case in Canada, and the people in Egypt are facing the same problem. This algorithm would essentially connect these two together, and we'd be able to really quickly see different cases that are happening. And this just makes solutions in healthcare and solutions in healthcare a lot faster, but also reduces the amount of deaths. And the second part of it is updatability. So for example, let's say that we're um, releasing a new vaccine, and WHO is, is like this approved FDA approval on this new vaccine for this new disease. 
the problem is this doesn't reach every corner of the world. When, when new vaccines come out, it doesn't always hit um, the really rural areas of the world. But if we're able to have updatability, like all of these virtual algorithms and all these virtual doctors can be comply, can comply with WHO standards and they know, oh, there's this new vaccine coming out, then it can also prevent people from dying just because of a lack of awareness. So I really, really want to work on this over the next few years. It's going to be a hard problem to solve. But I think if I can solve it, then it would be a major breakthrough for just bringing accessible health care to everyone. Absolutely. And I wish you the best of luck on all of those goals and endeavors. Now, as we start wrapping up, I want to quickly ask you, what is one piece of advice that you would give to other young individuals who aspire to make an impact in the fields of healthcare or AI research? I would say the first thing is figure out what your mission is, see what parts of healthcare you want to work in, find your dream, and then always, always, always connect experts and speak to patients. Great piece of advice, and I cannot agree more. Now, lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? So you can check out my LinkedIn, YouTube, or my Medium account, which is where I write articles, or even my Twitter. Um, they're all under the name Pavi Bin, which is spelled out P-A-V-I space D-H-I-M-A-N. And I normally post on LinkedIn and Twitter the most. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Pavi. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It's so inspiring to see other students make such a powerful impact on the world. So thank you. Thank you for having me. See you all soon. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Teen Scientists tonight. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this program, please go to WDIY.org or the WDIY app to share or become a WDIY member.